Coming up on the Money Beat podcast, Valiant had an awful day this week. And because of their awful day, a lot of hedge fund managers they had a terrible day as well. And you might be surprised by the end of this podcast that you will hear people start making a case for the Donald Trump recovery. This is Money Beat from The Wall Street Journal. Everything you need to know about money and the markets, and then some. Now, from New York, Financial Food Fight. Welcome to the Food Fight. Hope you got your bib on, because we're going to be throwing some uh, lettuce and potatoes, some tomatoes. Paul Vigna, Jack Otter from Barron's, Chuck Jaffe from Market Watch calling in from Boston, and John Carney. And Carney, I asked you as we were running the... the the intro, so you didn't get the answer. Well, what's your title now? It's uh, editor, Wall Street Journal Markets. Wow, that's a good. It's a good sounding title. <laughs> I think that makes you one of my bosses. Actually, <laughs> I'm not sure what it makes me, but you know, it makes me somebody who writes for the Wall Street Journal and uh, and goes on podcasts. Not a bad place to be in this world. All right, listen, let's uh, let's talk first. One of the most interesting stories this week uh, in the market, certainly. If, if you haven't, you've heard about this one, everyone at home. Uh, Valiant Pharmaceuticals just pummeled. Uh, was that Tuesday? Was that Tuesday that they, they came out with the earnings and they cut their outlook and they said they could be in danger of default, which is a fancy way of saying, hey, guess what? Uh, the stock lost more money on Tuesday than it was worth by the end of the day, which means it went down 51%. Uh, stunning stunning drop for a stock that everybody had been on top of for a long time anyhow. I mean, it's not like their problems emerged wholesale this week, but still a one-day drop of 51% and a lot of firms are just getting battered. A lot of investors too, but the firms the firms are standing out. A lot of hedge funds just getting creamed. I'm sure if you went back, you could find people saying before that drop, that the worst is probably behind us now. Yeah, we're right. you know we're nibbling on Valiant. We think you know there's some there's some value there. <laughs> right. Well, there was a great graphic in the paper. I think it was yesterday's paper, which that was just it. it was a chart of Valiant stock price going down, 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 with with pull quotes of people saying the worst is over. Now's time to get in. This is a good stock, good company, well run. Blah blah. All these things, you know just. Whoo. Hey, the stock gets five stars right now from Morningstar, which means it's undervalued and you might want to buy it. But in, in my case, David Trainer from New Constructs had been on my show, not before this most recent one, but for, for the, the big drop they had a couple of weeks earlier, and he had said Valiant is going is going to be maybe worth 20% of what it was called. So he was pretty much spot on in terms of saying it had to happen. And, yeah, if you believe in the underlying issues – and, and say, I, I want to own the products, or I, I somehow believe in the business, you could make a buying case. But right now, when I talk to value managers, this is one that they don't want. Even the special situations guys don't want this company. Right? I heard uh, in the weeks leading up to this week's collapse, a lot of people saying, oh, well, you know, now that um, it's dropped by, you know, 10 percent, 12 percent, you know, now it's definitely got to be, you know, worth buying. It's one of those, uh, you know, situations that investors often find themselves in. They see that something's already gone down, and they said, well, you know, I, I, you know, I should go in there and buy it without necessarily really looking at, wait, why is it going down? And do we have answers to all of these questions that people raised? And we didn't have answers, and we didn't really know what and this... still don't. Right. We still don't know a lot about what this company right. actually does. Um, and so 
I think that was a pretty clear warning sign way back in October when we started to find out that there were lots of things about Valiant and the way it ran its business that uh, even its big investors like Bill Ackman and had no clue were even occurring. People, when you're surprised at the way a company ma- is managed, that should be a big warning for people. Right. And also, it's a classic behavioral mistake called anchoring, where you see that former price and you think, wow, it's 50% of that. It must be a deal. I mean, retailers know this. They mark stuff up and then they mark it down. Right, and you right. see the belt it used to cost 200 bucks, so a $100 belt must be a real steal. Yeah. And yeah. You know, if, if you think you had a bad day any day this week, folks, <laughs> I, I guarantee there's no day you had that was as bad as Bill Ackman's one day where Pershing lost a billion dollars. A billion dollars in a day. I wish I could lose a billion dollars in a yeah, day. I was sure, right. right. Are, we, are we in the business of feeling sorry for Bill Ackman? <laughs> I feel sorry for the people who own the Sequoia Fund. Yeah. Because, yeah. because the Sequoia Fund, which was started by Warren Buffett's stockbrokers, and for years was one of the best records. It was closed for decades. And it was the fund that everybody at Morningstar would say, oh, this is the one you want to get into. Now under review in terms of its analyst rating, it is the worst fund in its peer group or one of the worst funds in its peer group over the last three years. Its valiant stake had gotten up to 30% of the portfolio last year. It's now closer to 20%. But here's the interesting thing. Not only are you taking it on the chin because the fund is suffering through the valiant problems with its largest holding, you know, almost 20% of the fund, but the fund has seen its assets shrink, not just because of value, but because of investors going to act with it, I'm done with you, by like $800 million in the last couple of months. And the result of that, this is not a fund that ever kept a lot of cash on hand. So they're selling other securities. That's going to generate a big capital gain. Talk about getting kicked in the butt on the way out the door. Congratulations, folks. You got out, and while you got out, the fund, or or you stayed in, you had losses, and you got a big capital gain, or you got out, and you know you wound up in a situation where you're still getting tanked on this. I think the important distinction here is that Bill Ackman, you know, he's taking big bets, and they might just go the wrong way. It's a hedge fund manager, right. um, so you you know you take your losses. But Sequoia, a mutual fund, a ten a forty act mutual fund, they're not supposed to do this. They're supposed to know better. I don't care what your level of of um, security is or your belief in a particular security. You don't put thirty percent of a mutual fund holders, into you know, one assets stock. in that stock. I don't name. understand why anybody would want to invest in a fund that that's that exposed to one name. Um, you, if you want to go all in on Valiant, you could do that all on your own. It's this is a publicly traded company. Why, yeah. why own Valiant through a proxy? I mean, I well, wonder that about uh, hedge fund managers too, who get very concentrated stakes and things. Why own it through a proxy rather than directly? Well, unless you bought this fund recently, you know, in the last year, year and a half, you didn't, you weren't buying it at a point where it was quite this concentrated. But this is a fund that basically has about. 50% of its, of its assets in its top five holdings. So it's not a fund that's ever been particularly well diversified. I believe it's actually registered as a fund that's allowed to be non-diversified, uh, which would explain why it's got a whole bunch of things in, it, in its portfolio that are more than 5% of the holdings, let alone the valiant stake. You know, the, the, the thing that, stick, that jumps out at me from everything you guys are saying is that a lot of this illustrates the, the issue of trust on Wall Street. People trusted Valiant Management 
that they were doing the right thing. You were buying a stock. They were not providing the right documentation. They were not giving investors all the information they needed, but people bought it because they were just putting their trust into management. Talk about why would people buy Sequoia? They trusted the management. They trusted the people to make the right decisions. And I'm not saying there should be no trust on Wall Street because then you don't have a functioning capital market. But I think it does illustrate the fact that far too often people don't do their own homework and they trust that somebody else knows better either because they tell a story better or because they have a nice suit, a flashy outfit, they're on CNBC, they look good. So they just they just buy into it and they don't do their own homework. And to me personally, that's a big problem with having our retirements tied up in 401k funds where we don't really have as much um, control over them as we should. And what ends up happening far too often is you get burned. Well, you've got a case like in the Sequoia Fund. Here's the thing. You've got a fund that if you look at its 15-year track record, its 15-year track record, it's top 10% of the peer group. Mm-hmm. You know, So you still have a fund where the reason that somebody gets trust is that the fund did something that over time had delivered superior performance. It's very difficult for an average investor to recognize that, wait, this fund is morphing or it's changing or fine. Right, it's it's right. continuing to pursue its buy and hold strategy. But, oh, by the way, the things that it's holding are changing enough that, uh-oh, I don't want to be here anymore. Yeah. All right. Let's take a break on that note. We will come back on the other side of this very important message. I'm Veronica Dagger, and I want to retire rich. How about you? Then listen to the Watching Your Wealth podcast. We'll help you get there. For more information, check us out at wsj.com slash podcast and find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and now Spotify. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Food Fight. Paul Vigna, John Carney, Jack Otter, and Chuck Jaffe. And everyone, remember, next week, Bank of England, former Bank of England Governor Mervyn King will be on this podcast. He's got a new book out, so he's out. He's talking about that, talking about the ECB, the future of the euro, the future of central banking. How do they do it? What mistakes did they make? It's going to be a very, very interesting interview. We're really excited about it. So keep an eye out for that one. Now then, gentlemen, oh, let's talk about let's talk about politics. We can't. It can't. You know, the, the the funniest thing to me is in the world of politics, Donald Trump has become what to us, uh, Apple, Tesla, Google, Netflix are just a, a name, a title that as soon as you write about it, talk about it, put it on the air, people tune in, and you know it. Whether or not Donald – look, the guy's running for president. He deserves some of the press. But, I mean, you you know in the media that if you start talking about Donald Trump, you're going to get some press. Well, because wherever you go, it's all people are talking right. about. I mean, I haven't bumped into that many folks on the street who want to talk about John Kasich. You know, that's just <laughs> Which not is really too to bad. Which is Frank, too bad really because too I would bad. like to talk about the guy. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, he's just sucking up all the oxygen. Right. He really is. You know, I've heard um, a lot of people say, well, you know – Donald Trump may not really be the front runner because he's only got 37 percent of the vote of all, all the popular votes so far. But um, that's very misleading because it's out of context. When Mitt Romney was at this point in the campaign season, he had 38 percent of the vote. So it's not uncommon for somebody to actually you know, go, be, be called the front runner, be considered the front runner right. at this point with you know, just a little more than a third of the vote. Um, and in, if you look at it, the, you read the editorial this morning in the journal. I, I, I did read the editorial, and um, the, you, 
you'll notice that they cited uh, Trump's 37 percent, but they, they didn't say that uh, Romney was only at 38. Yeah. The, they, there was also a – Trump has far more votes on an absolute scale at this point than Mitt Romney did. Uh, right now, about 20 million people have cast votes in Republican primaries. Last year at this time, only 9 million had cast votes. And there, there, there's a couple more primaries, so it's not that we've had like 35 primaries, I right. think, and they, there was only like 33 by this point. But uh, So it's not an apples-to-apples apples comparison, but there's far more people. Trump actually has almost – it's about 80 percent of – uh, the votes, his 7 million votes is uh, compared to the 9 million that were cast for all the candidates in 2012 at this point. So he, if he was, if we were back in 2012 and he had gotten all these votes, he'd have 80 percent of all the, of all the Republican votes. So he's actually, you know, one of the reasons we're talking about him so much is there's a lot of people voting for this guy. I mean, you know, 7 million Americans have already cast their ballot for Donald Trump. And a lot of those people are coming to the primary process either for the first time or the first time in a while because they're so excited about Trump. I think the only corollary working against him is that his negatives are far higher than Romney or, frankly, probably anybody else we could come up with. And so the question is, in a general, um, do people more people end up holding their nose and voting for Hillary Clinton than, than Donald Trump. And I don't, because people aren't excited about her and her negatives are pretty high. So it'll be a fairly depressing general election in that sense. If <laughs> it's a great summer. Two. Yeah. Well, I think you've got to also start to take a look and recognize that as much as we want to say like, wow, Trump is what happens when the bloodthirsty shut-ins who write comments beneath our words <laughs> take control of a political party. That's kind I, of I don't know what it's like over on Market Watch, Chuck, but we have a very loving readership over on the journal. <laughs> oh, oh, yes, because it's not the fellowship of the miserable who are commenting on your stuff. That's only on mine. It's only bloodthirsty shut-ins who come after our work. Uh, because we have somehow, you know, not as much exposure as the journal, so they wouldn't want to do it on yours. Uh, yeah. It, as much as we want to believe that it's all the fellowship of the miserable or what have you, I think you got to take a look and, and start to say, wait, you know, you may not want to admit it, but you know somebody who's supporting Trump. You know somebody who's come over and told you there's, there's at least one. And, I mean, I, I know it in my own life. There is a family member. She's pretty important to me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Uh, hi, Mom. And, <laughs> you know, she sort of said at this point, if the election were tomorrow, she'd be voting for Trump. Wow. And my mom's a lifelong Republican, and it's the wrong candidate for her, and she kind of acknowledges that, but she she considers him to be sort of the lesser of the evil she's looking at. And when I heard her say it, I thought to myself, you know, we all know somebody who is somehow, some way, not necessarily on the Trump bandwagon, but at this point, they are at least seriously considering whether Trump is better than the alternatives. So for as much as everybody wants to say, oh, well, you know, Trump can't win, he's got all these negatives, etc., I think you have to start to think about the folks that, that, you know, not just are the disenfranchised, not just are the ones who are writing the, the angry comments, but who are the ones who are going, well, wait a minute, I've always been Republican, he's got some of that down, how bad could change really be? And, you know, we can always vote them out after four years and whatever. And I think you have to look at that crowd and go, wait, there might be some people I respect and some people who I like or love who are there. And once that happens, that's where you go from Trump being like the spectacle and everything else to, oh, oh yeah, this could actually happen. 
I have to say, not that I have canvassed every conservative Republican in my life, but nobody has – I sort of got Chuck. No one has said to me yet that they're going to vote for Trump. I, I, met my, I don't know one. The question is, would they admit it because of the, the garbage well, that's that they another, from you? Yeah. Well, that's another question. I met my first uh, in, pro-Trump investment banker the other day uh, at the Four Seasons restaurant of all places. Uh, Where you he, go every day for he, lunch. You just, it's what you do, Carney. The Carney right? cafeteria. Right, yeah. The, yes. <laughs> uh, well, he was, he was unwilling to um, come out publicly, so I can't say his name, but he is, uh, he is a relatively well-known investment banker um, in, you know, at a big Wall Street firm. And uh, and he and I said, you know, I, w- I was bringing up this fact that there aren't a lot of people who have told me that they're for Trump, but there are obviously many millions of people voting for him. And he said, well, I'm for Trump. I'm just not saying it yet. Oh, uh, and the you, silent majority. There yeah, you go. Silent majority. And look, he doesn't ever have to say it. Right. I mean, that's the beauty of the voting booth. He doesn't ever have to say it. Let's remember, in my case, before it was, you know, my, my mother actually saying it. The president of my high school class was Chris Christie. Right. He's saying it. I wouldn't have expected this from him either. And he has said it, obviously. Yeah. Oh, he's done a lot more than say it. Oh, yeah. No question. (laughs) Yeah. Much to the the disappointment. The funny side is all of my high school friends, you know, on Facebook or whatever, who were loving Chris's run, who are now, you know, going, yep, that's, wow, couldn't be more stunned. So, yeah. Hey, know. hey, do me a favor. As a, a resident of New Jersey, the next time you talk to Chris, tell him to come home and do his job. <laughs> How about that? Just what? To, if you happen to see him, you know, offhand, I, just mention it to him. I have a controversial theory about what happens if Donald Trump gets elected. I actually think it's very. it would be very good for the economy and for the markets. Um, and here's why. He's running on Make America Great. If he wins, it means he has convinced a lot of people that he can make America great. There's a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy when it, you know in economics, where if people are confident that we've got you know that we're going to be great, they they'll, they'll spend more, they'll, they'll you know perhaps invest more aggressively, and so you know we could get a little bit of a a mini economic boom just from Donald Trump having won and the process of convincing people that he really can, you know, shake things up and, and, you know, make things. Well, if we're we're going to make the Trump case, I would also say that because, you know, he's not beholden to anyone. I'm not just talking about the money issue, but he really doesn't represent the Republican Party. He was just a little bit closer to them maybe than Democrats. So so one of the huge problems we have in Washington is this failure to recognize that actually standing up for principle is not always a good thing. If you want to get something done, there's someone in Iowa and someone in Florida and someone in California who disagree with you and you got to come together. Well, he has no platform. Right. So he can do that. He can negotiate and say, yeah, I'll give Paul a little bit and John a little bit and Chuck a little bit and uh, we're going to push this bill through. He wrote a book called The Art of the Deal. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, fundamentally, you know, maybe even though we, you know, we have the, you know, what, this one image of him as, you know, and one he wants us to have right now is the tough guy. Maybe he's the you know the the guy who you know goes down in history as the guy who ends the gridlock and you know gets people in Washington to make deals with each other again. Wow, are we really doing this? <laughs> <laughs> is that really? It's only March. Yeah. Oh my God, it is. Uh, I, 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 uh, so you're saying that it's basically it's a wealth effect kind of thing. Yep. You know, the wealth effect, that theory doesn't really work so well. I don't know if you've noticed that one either. <laughs> I, well, I have to say, I think that one of the reasons the economy has been so slow is that people are still ha- have are traumatized by the financial crisis. And that 
fear has been, you know, with us. Every time something goes wobbly, people are like, oh, no, you know, the bank's stocks drop like 10 percent, you know, when, whenever there's bad news. Any problem around the world, we're like, okay, you know, which bank is, you know, the banks right, are right, much right. healthier than they were back then, but we're still living with this fear. Well, we just um, don't believe it. Right. Uh, right. They told us they were healthy before the crisis That's and they true. weren't. And, 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 so right. why do we believe them now? And that is that is a big part of this, of uh, investor psychology, consumer yeah. psychology. Right. People, yeah, there's more of the savings rate have yep. gone up. Uh, so that's a, that's a fear move. Yeah. And yep. so what so um you know maybe some sort of you know catalyst to change that psychology is what we need uh a lot of people thought that might be Barack Obama but maybe we were we were just too close to the crisis at that point you know for hope and change to really take to really take force. I don't think a lot of people are going to be overjoyed in any way by the election of Hillary Clinton. She might be you know great on a lot of policies but as we said earlier, he, she's, she doesn't generate a lot of excitement. Uh, if Trump wins, it will mean that he did generate a lot of excitement among people, and I think that will carry over into the other yeah. aspects of our well, life. I mean, if we're going to stick a celebrity into the White House to make us feel good, I think I'd rather have Beyonce. <laughs> How about Kanye? Yeah, Kanye is actually running. Yeah, uh, I don't know about Kanye. But, be, but Beyonce, I'd feel pretty good about having Beyonce in the White House. We could put a ring on it. We could. <laughs> Wow! Wow! See, we're see everybody. Listen, listen. We are not just complete nerds. <laughs> we're a little. We're a tiny, tiny bit with it. Just a little bit, but a little with it. All right. Uh, let's leave it there before you embarrass yourselves any further. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening. We will see you next week.